Hello and welcome to another episode of Book Faces Live, the show where we talk to the faces behind your books. I'm Nathan Van Coops, I'm your host, and today, uh, this evening, I'm excited to be bringing you a, a special guest, science fiction and fantasy writer Mal Cooper. Welcome to the show, Mallory. Hey, thanks for having me. It's fantastic having you on the show. We were just chatting. Um, it's been since Nink since we've seen each other in person, um, yeah. but we've you know run into each other here and there uh, throughout the years. Of course, I... Um, I also was able to chat with your your wife um, years ago because she also writes time travel. So we kind of ran in mm-hmm. some of the same circles. So uh, we've been uh, getting to know each other over the years, which has been great. But you have um, a pretty extensive, uh, pretty is a really uh, under under undervalued in the series. You're in a fourteen series. Um, how many books have you written right now? Because it's it's I want to say you and your wife. What's one hundred and fifty? Is that plus? Oh, well, t- together, Jill and I have written over 200 books, but my AM14 series alone has uh, 95 books in it. Which is outstanding. That's just a staggering number. Um, it's, a, it's a few, yeah, it's for sure. <laughs> yeah, so um, can you, for people who aren't familiar with you and aren't familiar with your series, can you maybe kind of uh, sum up the basic idea behind it and what it is that you write? So uh, I guess um, a way to think of it is it's far future science fiction. So it, most of the stories take place at least a thousand years in the future. And the premise that I had was what if everything that we imagine becomes possible? Um, okay. A lot of science fiction sort of like hinges on one particular thing. Like what if we get teleportation or what if we get fast and light travel or you know, what if we encounter aliens? And I want to write, want to write a series that's what if everything happens, what if everything we possibly imagine happens. We share our brains with AIs, you know, we can travel across the stars, mm-hmm. all the different things that you could think of for uh, all come true. And then what kind of stories can I fit into there? And as it turns out, just about anything can fit into it. Yeah, this is one of the reasons why I love science fiction. And um, as a time travel writer, I get to explore the- Apologize, my dog decided at this particular moment to eat his food nearby. So if you hear the crunching in the background, that's what that is. He'll, I swear, it'll be done soon. I was uh, wondering. Yeah, that's he. Just, like, just as soon as I hit live, he started walking over there. I was like, oh no, this is this is not the right time for this. It's pandemic life. Uh, this is the way it is now. <laughs> everyone's getting to see this glimpse into everyone's like private lives that they wouldn't necessarily see. Um, yeah. or hearing their dogs in this case. Um, but I, it will be over shortly. But the, the, uh, yeah, the thing about science fiction, especially, you know, as a futurist myself, I get to write, you know, far future stuff. And mm-hmm. it's so interesting trying to predict and guess, mm-hmm. uh, what's going to happen. It's, it's difficult and fun, a little bit nerve wracking for me. Does it, uh, is it challenging for you to try to like imagine the future? Oh yeah. Cause I, I'm writing rel- you know, fairly far out there. Like if you think mm-hmm. like Star Wars or Star Trek is like the 24th and 25th century. So this is, mm-hmm. you know, twice as far into the future as Star Trek is, is my earliest yeah. time. Yeah. And, and you got to think like, yeah, what's society going to be like when people live hundreds of years? Um, even if we get just get really good cheap plastics that don't damage the environment, what will that do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know what happens when we when we can go into space and have access to limited resources like there's an asteroid a near near earth asteroid that has six times the gdp of planet earth worth of minerals that could be accessed relatively easily like what does yeah. that do to economies and stuff like that so i like to think yeah. about like all the different things and the kind of impacts they would have and even from a, like a societal standpoint um like what happens what's what's life going to be like when um when we can all get mods and that small people aren't necessarily weak 
And mm-hmm. if you live for hundreds of years, the way that we like look at someone and we say like, well, they're wise because they're old. Well, everyone looks like they're 20 for 500 years. You can't right. just glance at someone and tell if they're wise or not. So there's all these yeah. fun little things you get to play with. And yeah. to be honest, if you pile them all up together, it probably would make society unrecognizable. So you still kind of you have to kind of blend that with the story that a modern reader is going to be able to absorb. Yeah, and I think I think that's the the big challenge is because you have to make it at its heart still a story about characters who yeah. interact the same way as, as we do. Um, yeah. Even though yeah maybe they have an AI implant in their head to you know 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 a million languages or something. So uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting reading other futurists' ideas and. Um, just kind of some of it, it, it I get annoyed because I'll be researching something and find out that this far-flung idea I have is already in progress I'll be like oh people are, <laughs> yep we already have that now like, yeah they and if try you, a little harder <laughs> if you sorry pardon me if you look at a lot of science fiction modern technology is already outstripping a lot of science fiction that we have now I mean you look at um, anybody anything any science fiction shows you look at where they have computer screens mm-hmm. where are we're like five or six years away from having holographic interfaces for all sorts of things. Yeah. And you're certainly not because you starships in the far future having like actual, because screens are heavy, like having to put actual screens everywhere. No, we're going to these tiny little holographic projectors and that's what everything will run off of. Yeah. And stuff a- like that. Augmented reality. Um, yeah, exactly. This is big thing. Um, I know in my future worlds, they have a, a meta space where everything, where, but the, and you think about practical things like, okay, well, if we have self-driving cars, why do we wouldn't still have road signs? Like we wouldn't need them. Like we don't need That's a stop. True. We don't need a stop sign or a stoplight anymore. Like cars just have it all built in into the software. You can see the stoplight on your, you know, your heads up display. Even um, doesn't yep. need to need doesn't need to exist anymore in real real life. Real life. That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. All, all sorts of things. Half the poles that we have sticking up inside the roads will be gone then. Right. Exactly. And or that's some all of, the poles. Yeah, and that's some of the things that, you, that when you start to inhabit these worlds in your head for long enough, you start to feel like, oh, what would it be like to interact in that world? Um, yeah, I remember I heard someone criticizing. There was a, a show or a movie, Contagion, that was on, and people were trying to now compare it to a real life pandemic. And they're watching the fictional version, being like, "Oh no, they're still shaking hands. That's wrong." You know? Yeah, like, right. They, yeah. They, they were so close, but they got that wrong. And um, do you find that your science fiction readers are that way too, where they want to really get into the details and kind of nitpick the yeah, specifics? They, they love that, and I think the thing that helps for them is. Like because I'm always writing books and I'm doing it pretty much every day. Like I basically inhabit a far future science fiction world. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm pretty much there all the time anyway. So they know when they talk to me and they're like, "Why did you do X Y Z?" I'm like, "Well, because you know in this world they did this thing and they had this invention and that caused this to happen and that's why everybody does this." And they're just like, yeah. "Oh, wow, that's really cool." <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I think it's it's a pleasure sometimes for readers to realize how well thought out stuff is if they're like oh wow you've really actually done the research and kind of thought this thought yeah. this out and they're not just making this up on the fly um but yeah so I, I think that's really cool for you you classify your stuff as space opera is that correct um to be honest i mean i write i write space opera hard science fiction military science fiction all blended together because okay. i write with the, the scope of a space opera story where it's this massive galaxy spanning story um but it's all all very hard science fiction in that, you know, you can't, if a starship needs to break, it has to turn around, you know, and fire its engines to slow down type of thing. It doesn't yeah. just magically slow down as it approaches a planet. It's It's right. got to do it the other way around. Um, 
and then I also I also write a lot of military stuff. So it's really those three main genres blended together. But there's also like a lot of a lot of storylines that follow like genetic modification and colonization and stuff like that. So it's it's kind of the entire sci-fi gamut to be honest. Except for aliens. There's so far there are no aliens. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So you've got all of this space exploration, but it's no aliens. Okay. What was no the aliens. logic behind that? Why? Because there aren't any there aren't any aliens, so I didn't put them in a oh. book. Okay, so that's just <laughs> all right. This universe, just aren't it? Well, this this galaxy, our galaxy, okay. probably does not have any other any other um, advanced sentient life right now. Oh, interesting. And that's your yeah. personal theory on current galaxy as well, or just well? Just your so I guess yes. Whenever you talk about talk about life, of course, we have to narrow it down to talking about carbon based life forms that exist between zero and one hundred degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, possibly maybe some methane based life form, but any sort of life form that's going to use um heat as energy and so on and so forth and we don't talk really can talk within our galaxy because all of the galaxies are so far away that they might as well not exist as far as any sort of reasonable travel is concerned so the thing that we have is is um back in the 60s or 70s some some guys did some math on how long it would take us to fill the entire galaxy and then a guy named fermi looked at all those numbers and said dear god where is everybody and then math basically says that in 100,000 years, actually, I think their math said 50, but we know there's more stars now. So now the math works. So let's put 100,000 years without faster than light travel. So just with like moderately more advanced technology than we have right now, yeah. humanity colonized the entire galaxy, brim to brim. So it only took 100,000 years for that to happen. Now, the galaxy is 13 billion years old, which means that this would have happened like what, like 50 million times? So Earth would have been colonized by aliens 50 million times. Now, of course, that wouldn't happen in the early ages of the galaxy because, the, for example, iron didn't really exist in abundance until um, half the lifespan of the universe ago and so on. Because you only get elements heavier than iron um, when stars go supernova, and it takes a star burning an entire lifespan to even make iron. Mm. Um, so, it's, so anything heavier than iron comes from comes from supernovas, and anything less heavy than iron comes from just regular star burning. So we, for the fact we have things like uranium and whatnot on our planet means that our world is actually made from the results of a prior supernova, and our stars are already five billion years old. So it was actually a really rare star. So there's not a lot of stars as old as our star that have been stable long enough to make life. And so there's all these theories saying, well, that's where my theory is called the rare Earth theory, in that there there really aren't enough things like Earth that are stable. And old enough because we think it takes about three billion years for complex life to to appear, mm-hmm. um, and you've got to have Van Allen belts protecting you from radiation, and you've got to have a moon that keeps your oceans sloshing, and there's all these things to create our kinds of life. And the idea just basically being that um, there might be millions of species as advanced as us or more that occur throughout the Milky Way galaxy's lifespan, mm-hmm. but even if one of our species um, persists for a hundred thousand years, we're never going to overlap any other species. Yeah. That's one thing that I think about a lot is the time element, is that yeah. we're not just a blip in space, we're a blip in time, and there may have been amazing advanced, uh, you know, species in, inhabiting our galaxy, but just not now, you know, yeah. not or yeah. not yet. Um, yeah. so and it is it is entirely possible that maybe some localized um, cult, cultures even spread across like a quarter of the galaxy a, a million years ago, but just kind of based on what we know about astrophysics, it's possible that humanity is on the leading edge of life. Yeah, that, that's an interesting thought too. I, yeah, see, it's interesting but, uh, where you get the math too, because like I've heard, I've heard a different theory where it's like, okay, if we took, you know, the the most powerful engine we have, which is like space shuttle engine, if we put that ten thousand of those on a ship and sent it to the nearest star, uh, you know, Proxima Centauri, it would still take us um, 
80,000 years to get there. Just because of the distance is just so far, um, you have to really go you get, get up and going really fast to even get to the closest star. So um, I guess it just depends on, on your engine speeds. Yeah, I think we, we right now, um, there's been theories proposed right now that could get us to Proxima Centauri in 200 years. Okay, well, that's, that's pretty fast. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, it's quite, yeah, but it used to be a lot slower than that. But the, the question is how, how big would it be and whatnot. But we would, we would need to actually work out fusion to get to start spreading like that. But we're not that far away from fusion anymore. We're, I know fusion's always been one of those things that's just five years away, but it might actually be five years away this time. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm always, you know, looking for like the, uh, how QBRA drive warp systems, you know, to try to, you know, speed things up too. I think that yeah. would be fun. Uh, Cecilia Mech was watching. She says, uh, Nathan and Mao, woohoo. I get, we get a woohoo out of that one. Tyler Davis <laughs> says, uh, I'm still with the, with the earth is a reality show from South Park pe- theory. And, uh, <laughs> Megan sees, says my kind of topic. I know she's a big ancient, ancient aliens fan. So, she so you, you want, so you want to hear one, one more sort of interest though, so long the idea of us being like a reality show kind of thing. Do you sure. want to have any, yeah, absolutely. So, so start this. So um, from your time standpoint, just something about time, the star forming and star burning period of our universe will last about 50 trillion years. We're currently at 13.8 ish billion years. So we're just at the very, very beginning of our universe's lifespan. But that star burning period um, is actually just a sliver at the very beginning of our universe's lifespan, whether it's um, infinite expansion, the big crunch or the um, ultimate heat death of the universe, no matter which one of those three ends of the universe occurs, it's, it's hundreds and hundreds of trillions of years out. So, but what's going to happen at the end of that 50 trillion year period is all the stars are going to be gone and all that's going to be left is dust and black holes. Um, And any significantly advanced civilization is just going to hunker down around black holes and just kick rocks into the things for energy. And then eventually the black holes will evaporate and that'll be the final energy. But no one really, you know, no one's going to want to live around a black hole. So we'll probably actually all just load ourselves into computers and simulate ourselves until the end of the universe. So, and if you consider the amount of time that that's going to cover, like billions of trillions of years is how long that period will cover. It's much more likely that we actually are living inside of a computer at an end of the universe um, scenario than, than that we are actually really at the beginning of the universe where we think we are. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so there's something crazy for you. Have you listened to or, or read the, the Bobiverse uh, books? Um, I've not, no. There's, there's a book, heard- yeah, there's a book called I Am Legion, I Am Bob. And mm-hmm. um, it the basic premise of the story is this, this person who gets, they've developed this system of being able to download your brain into a computer and he gets killed, wakes up as a computer and then ends up as a spaceship and has to, and it's very, um, you probably like it because it does deal with a lot of the actual physics of science fiction. You know, like, of, you know, like if you're, he's, he launches more cannonballs in space than laser. And there's no lasers. It's like, I'm just going to send a, a massive object and just hurdle it at you. And that's, it's much less um, glamorous than Star mm-hmm. Wars with, with blasters and sound effects because in reality yeah. there, there, there is no sound in space so it's <laughs> very, very anticlimactic in space yeah. and a cannonball doesn't seem like a great projectile but it kind of is like it's really all yeah. you really need to, to hurdle it through something um, when you're doing yeah, it in my probably. series they actually fire um, a lot of railgun powered grape shot is yeah. what they use in combat a lot and they'll just seed the entire, an entire battle space with grape shot 
So if anyone tries to fly through it, no matter where they go, they're just going to get holed by the stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very dangerous out there. In space. It's yeah. Space is <laughs> space wants to kill you very very badly. <laughs> it's a very easy place to die, and not a great really way to go. Is. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's that's that's just so much fun to think about, which is why I it was is. Ex- one of the reasons I was excited to have you on the show and geek out about this stuff. It is actually and so back to, back to your thing about what they what sometimes they get wrong in shows. One of the things I find really interesting is um, what's the temperature of space outside of Earth. If you were to like get kicked out of the space shuttle. Um, on a trip to the moon, what would happen to your body? Yeah, that's and of course, obviously the pressure is, is a big factor. But yeah, the temperature thing—that um, is a good because everybody always if, has everybody always vacuum, has as you're freezing. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's like it's more likely you're gonna. Uh, I, I, my wife asked me this the other day, like, what happens if you get ejected into space? I was like, well, I know your your eyeballs will start to evaporate, like your blood vessels will start to burst because the pressure change, the rapid pressure change you actually um, you actually you have um you have some your, your smaller capillaries will burst but that's about it actually your your body will be fine yeah uh, because in training exercises they've actually had people be subjected to full vacuum and i think the survival period is around 90 seconds yeah. and you'll actually be fine afterwards with like with no problems oh really that long yeah because i've heard yeah. various things like where you're actually functionally conscious for a pretty brief period of time I think and it's then, 45 seconds you're conscious yeah, for. Like, I mean, NASA's only, it's only, NASA's only had it happen twice, but they actually documented the whole thing. So they know exactly how long these guys were conscious yeah. and how long they were out and everything. It yeah. happened back in the 50s. You can actually look up their white papers on it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah but the interesting thing up. is that you won't freeze. People always have you freezing in space. Right, yeah. Crystallizing be, and stuff. Yeah. But outside of Earth, you'll actually roast. You'll cook. Yeah. Yeah, the, ra- it's the new- radiation is, is terrible. Well, it's just the sunlight. You're actually yeah. out in noonday. It's like being in the desert at noon. It's yeah. really hot. The sunlight's just beating on you. If you're out by Pluto, you'll freeze, but it'll take a day. Oh, really? Because there's nowhere for the heat from your body to transfer to. Because uh, yeah. that's, yeah. that's what temperature changes require. The energy the, yeah, the, right. the, the, in your own molecules have to transfer to something else, and there's just not enough stuff for them to transfer to. So. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Which I is think, fun because then once you once you know that stuff, it makes the stories more interesting. It does make it interesting. It makes people think about it. And yeah. uh, as opposed to like a lot of modern movies and fiction where they're just sort of glossing over things or they're just making stuff up. I was I remember watching Guardians of the Galaxy or one of these. I'm like, they're just blatantly ignoring um, any physics whatsoever and just saying, yeah, yeah we're just going to rock it around out here. No spacesuit at all. We're just put It'll a mask be fine. On. It'll be fine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, although, just like, yeah, although now that now that one knows the how long you could survive in space and be conscious for, it actually makes yeah. Princess Leia's Mary Poppins routine a little bit more believable. Yeah, it does. She could a, could actually survive that long. Yeah, that part didn't didn't bother me as much. I was like, okay, well, there's it's it's possible, especially if you're using some. Yeah. They were making up all kinds of new force powers in that movie anyway, so I was just like, right, whatever. I'm along for the ride. <laughs> at this point, we've suspended all disbelief, and we're just yeah. going with whatever you throw at us. I've ranted about that movie. Um, oh, it's the worst movie yeah. ever made. Just because they break so many of their own rules, which I think is yeah. is the ultimate and, crime. And that the whole plot of the movie is chase them until they run out of gas. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the movie's plot. Like you need a better plot than that in yeah. your movie. <laughs> yeah, that was that was rough. Um, it's basically a Smokey and the Bandit episode <laughs> with a whole like side angle that went nowhere. Like the whole like subplot of them going to the casino planet. Actually, and no. The going to the casino effed them all. If they hadn't gone to the casino, everybody would have got away. 
Oh, that's true. That's where, yeah, because that's where they picked up the dude that that gave all the people away. So if they just sat pretty. They would have been fine. Basically, <laughs> it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark. If they'd done nothing, they would have been fine. Yeah, yeah, everything would have turned out the same. Yeah, or, or better. Yeah. <laughs> or better in this case, it would have yeah. been way better if the main characters had just sat in their duffs. <laughs> yeah, that's a whoops as a writer for sure. That really is. Yeah, you look back at it. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's pretty fun. So you've talked. We, we, I was talking to you about this before the show, where you are creating a world for your Aeon fourteen universe that is going to be so expansive that you think it's it's already got ninety five books in it, but you think it may cover mm-hmm. five hundred books. I uh, reserve the right to only get to four hundred. <laughs> okay, only. Yeah. Um, talk to me about your world building. Talk to me about the ideas that that fuel a story world at that level because that's something that I I don't know anyone else I've talked to on the show that has any kind of ideas that grand well part of it was um, that when I so a lot some of it came from studying World War II um, as I learned more about World War II and I learned about crazy things like the the death march of Bataan which you you probably know about I'm not um, really familiar with it no, no. Oh, okay so, so this I'll, I'll give the super brief version of it. So um, 12 hours after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, they attacked the Philippines. There were 100,000 Filipino troops and 20,000 American troops um, serving under General MacArthur in the Philippines. He was actually retired there. And they got forced by the Japanese back to this peninsula called Bataan. And they actually held out for like three or four months until basically there were like no more bugs left on the peninsula. They'd eaten everything. Mm. Um, the U.S. military sends in a PT cruiser. They pick up MacArthur and boot him off to rebuild the Pacific fleet. And they say, everybody else, just surrender. Sorry. And so they surrendered to the Japanese. And the Japanese went in and murdered everybody who was sick and then did this march from Bataan all the way around because this peninsula all the way back around through Manila and they killed tens of thousands of the of the POWs on the march, and they did atrocities that I won't even say aloud on on, on your show for you. Yeah. Um, and then they took everybody. They used took gotten baton, and they used them as slave labor in Japan until when the when the when the Americans came and finally rescued them. Most of them were were dead, and the ones that were alive just literally looked like walking skeletons. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and a lot of the companies that we actually buy cars from today used American slave labor to kind of start up their and, and Filipino slave labor to start their companies, um, which is something that something that I think about every now and then. And that's actually, yeah. to be honest, so a lot of times people say like, well, why did America drop the bomb? We knew that was going on in the, the it, at the time, and we're kind of like these people are 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 brutally murdering POWs and using them as slave labor. So there was a lot of not a lot of love lost at that point. So the reason why I bring that up is like that's a really important story about World War II. It's like actually really pivotal. It has to do with why we drop the bomb on civilian populations and everything, um, just because of because of the way that that our two countries were at war, um, and the things that were done, and no one really knows about it. And I thought like uh, a massive space combat between multiple multi-system nations in space would make World War II look like a footnote. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you could write stories about World War II for your entire life and not even cover a fraction of what happened in that time period. Mm-hmm. And yet when you watch so many um, science fiction stories about massive wars and big conflicts and whatnot, they wrap it up in like four or five books. And you're like, that's not a war, that's a skirmish. You know, right, <laughs> that's yeah, really right. what that is. You know, like, like that's, less informa- that's less than D-Day. You know, almost the amount, if you were to write about D-Day, you could write, I mean, five books writing about D-Day would be considered, like, not enough information to convey what happened in D-Day. 
if you want to get into patents, pretend army and all sorts of stuff like that. So I thought I want to tell I want to tell this story for reals. Like, what would it really be like to get into all the nitty gritty and talk about some of these super critical side stories that no one even would even know about? But like, I get to like write a seven book series about these characters that all they did was like save this one system and make it so the main characters doing something else could actually succeed in what they did. And it's instead of just being like uh, a couple of chapters in a major book, they get like they get like five hundred thousand words written about them and, and what they're doing. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to write all those little stories that go along in a major conflict. Like some of the stories are really just like stopping a piece of intel from from getting from one place to another, and that gets like an entire series written about it. And oh. and I'm doing all that because I want to sort of like flesh it out and see what it would look like um, to tell tell something like that. That's really that's cool. a really that's long really answer. Cool. No, it's okay. I think it's interesting, and it's obvious that you've invested in this world to the point where you know this is where you want to write. This is the genre you want to be in. This is working for you, and you plan to to stay a while and just really keep yeah. developing. Um, I do, yeah. Which I'm very I'm envious of that because you know I I jump around a lot. I, I'm just over here inventing brand new genres or you know new books. Like I always have the shiny new idea in my head halfway through the book I'm writing, so I'm. I'm trying to like, oh, go do this new shiny thing, and um, yeah, you gotta stop. You can't do that yeah. shiny new thing. I know. You write some down some notes so you don't forget about it, but you can't go do it. Yeah, yeah, which is a yeah. a good productivity tip. Which is um, another thing. Like you're incredibly produ- productive. Um, obviously, to be able to put out this many books in the amount of time you have, because you haven't been doing this that long. I mean, a couple of years, right? Twenty seventeen. Yeah. Uh, twenty in in January first of twenty seventeen, I only had four books out. So the okay. the other ninety one had been written in the last three and a half years. Yeah, which is incredible productivity. And um, of course, I've been watching you. I want to talk a little bit about you've been doing live Facebook writing sprints lately. Where yeah. I'm, I'm on Facebook and I'm like, oh well, there's Mel. She's writing there's right Mal. now. Um, Bagging away. Be, yeah. What inspired that? Um. So I'm. I'm one of those rare extrovert authors. Um, and since coming out as transgender, it's actually been, I've wanted to be extroverted even more because before that I was always kind of hiding a part of myself. So now that I got to be my real self, I'm like, I just got to be myself all the time. I've been, it's been, I've been holding it off for 30 years. It's happening all the time now. Um, and so before, um, in the last, in the last year or so, I got a lot of that out by going to a lot of cons and being out in public a lot and just sort of, being out there and um and even in in what was it late january i started working at a co-working space the staples up in new england you can actually go they have like whole office areas in the back with like a little cafe and all sorts of like cube areas and offices and conference rooms and all sorts of stuff so i've been working Mm -hmm. in one of those and um i gotten like used to like being around people every single day and then as i'm like watching like lockdown start to roll across the globe i'm like oh god i've got to figure out something otherwise i'm gonna go start raving mad yeah because um, i actually when i moved to the co-working space my, my my writing output went up and i'm like getting up and going for coffee and talking with people around the water cooler and stuff like that and i'm writing more words so i realized like this is fuel for me so i when i i a couple of things i i had to do was i, I realized i had to sort of i find myself really liking fashion so much so i created like a daily fashion show like i think i've done 57 different um like little mini photo shoots since um since lockdown started and then i was still having trouble getting my words done and i I don't know what possessed me to start doing live sprints i think chris fox did it like way back in the days of yore and jill might have mentioned it i think jill mentioned it actually and she put the idea in my head and then later on i thought of it and became my idea and then she reminded me it was her idea originally (laughs) 
and then um, that's how it goes, right? Yeah. And yeah, so I did it once, and I got my work count done like three hours earlier than normal. And um, and on top of that, I had all these people that were showing up and writing along with me, and I kind of didn't expect that to happen. Yeah. Um, and I got these people saying like, I haven't written since November, and I just finished a novel like because of you and stuff like that. Oh, so that's it's. Fantastic. It's really cool to to do that and to know that it's it's helping other people as well. So it's kind of what's kept me going. Are you doing it on a scale? Like, do we know when they're coming? Are, are you posting up? Okay, it's going to be tomorrow this time. Or are you going to be posting like a schedule so that people can jump on um, board and, and co-write? Your, your I I do them almost every afternoon from about one to five Eastern Standard. Uh, sometimes I'm a little bit late starting, but um, and sometimes I end a little bit early. But today I think I went uh, almost to seven o'clock. Actually, wow. that I was the, doing it till, but at the very latest, I started two o'clock Eastern, mm-hmm. um, and I think the only day I missed a couple of days recently, and that was because of Mother's Day, and not feeling well. But um, otherwise, like, I think I did it for almost two weeks straight at one point, like every single day. Yeah. So I probably should post a schedule. That would, be, that would probably be useful. It'd be good like, I, to to have a notice, depending on what you're, how you're. Are you posting it up on? What are you using to go live? Just stream? I'm using stream. I'm using Streamyard. Okay, so I don't know if they have an announcement um, function on there or not. So I know eCam, like I'm using right now, like I can post in advance that I'm going to be going to be live, and people can yeah, say I, get a reminder. And uh, I don't know if I can schedule it on my personal page or not because that's where I do them. I do them my personal wall. I'm not sure if I can schedule there. I know I could schedule if it's a group or like a page page, but there you go. Yeah, I'll have to see. Or I could just post a schedule. That yeah, wouldn't be that might wouldn't be, be the hardest because it is so inspiring to see someone else working and to know I, I've done it through you know just Facebook Messenger chats with other authors like who's sprinting today who wants to sit down and write you know for the next twenty five minutes and it is yep. so inspiring knowing that someone else is writing and you have to the accountability factor is huge yeah. and you've got people yep. watching you live and actually seeing your screen. So if you yep. stop and, and just stare off into space for a while, everyone's gonna know. <laughs> You know? Yeah, sometimes I'm like I'm like stuck. I'll just like write the word um so they yeah. know that like, I'm not like on Facebook or something like Making that. Making progress. Yeah. Thinking. Um, mine would Ridiculous be brutal. Lines. People would be what seeing me. Mine would be brutal. They would be seeing me back up and correct little things here and there and like rereading <laughs> the last two paragraphs over again and then getting three sentences written and then like rereading some more. Like I'm the I'm the worst. I, most of my writing happens in my head. Uh, oh really? I'm not like that at all. I I don't see the words or anything when I write. For me, it's almost like I'm watching a movie. Yeah, well, that's that's probably much more helpful. Um, <laughs> probably, mine has yeah. to be mine has to be pretty well percolated before it comes out. Like I, I can't. Hmm. I'm not I'm not forming ideas on the page. I'm forming ideas while I'm out walking the dog, and then I've got to come down and right. download them down. I am actually a pretty <laughs> slow writer. Like in a 20 minute sprint, I usually only do 300 to 400 words. Okay. Um, and the people I sprint with crush me all the time. Like they're doing like yeah. 500, 600, 700 words in 20 minutes. But yeah. I'm I'm like the I'm always telling them I'm like the tortoise. You know, I'm just I just do it over and over and it's over again until yeah. I until I hit my count. Win the race. Yeah, no, that's that's good to hear because that's that's about where I'm at. I'm only doing probably four. If a 25 minute sprint, I'm probably 400. Maybe I might be able to squeak out 450. Yeah. Um, something like that. So. Yeah, if I'm over 600, then it's just like holy crap! Like it was just flowing yeah. that time. But yeah. but yeah, yeah, that's that's cool. Yeah, it's kind of funny too because I, I was talking to this other author, and she's like, she's like, it's kind of cool for everybody to see that like you actually aren't like a crazy fast author. It's just butt in the chair is really all it comes down to. Yeah, and uh, I'm 
I'm shocked that you've been keeping going off because I've only seen you during my, my brief window of nap time when my daughter goes down for nap. I'm like, yes, I'm going to go be productive. And I go sit down and I like go to write and there you are writing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, yes. And I, But I'm quitting because I have to go back to watching my toddler and you're still going right, until yeah. 7 o'clock apparently. So putting, <laughs> putting us all to shame. Um, but I think... Well, I, do, I put up a lot of pre-orders. Pre-orders are my motivation. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering, uh, we should talk a little bit about some of your um, marketing strategies. Obviously, that is one of them, so you do do pre-orders. Are you um, KU exclusive or not? I am right now, yeah. Okay. And so so what's it like for you putting out a, a new book now? Like, What are some of the, the essentials of the, the Mal Cooper arsenal for, for success right now? Well, I'm kind of in a bit of a weird spot because almost everything I'm releasing right now is like very deep in a series. Like um, mm-hmm. on the 21st of May, book 12 in a series comes out. And um, and then I just released some books that are spinoffs of spinoff series. And some of them don't really work too well unless you've read other books. So it's not so they're, they're not the sort of thing I can market to brand new readers very much. However, I am specifically targeting some stuff to do that. I have a series coming out um, June 2nd is when the first book comes out and that one is actually going to be released um, on audible at the exact same time i did that with oh, a nice. publisher called atheon so we got uh i got an advance from audible and everything which was kind of shiny and um i think paperback print and audio will be all at the same time and we're also doing a crazy thing where the the, the ebook will be 99 cents which means the whisper sync will only be um 199 um, that's great and that's kind of a neat thing we can do because we got the um we got the advance from audible because you know the publisher got some and I got some, so we're not really needing to make a whole bunch of money up front. We're, we can actually take this first book and just build, build rank on the cheap to get more people into the series and try and, and try and spread the the net wide that way. So that's something we're doing. So that one's going to involve booking a lot of promos, doing ads. Um, we're targeting like twenty to thirty swaps for that particular series. Um, and I personally find that newsletter swaps are still like the best, least expensive thing you can do to to get a book to do well. I don't. I find that there's just there's just not much else out there that will do as well as a newsletter swap for the amount of money you spend. And I think that's great, especially in your branch of the genre, um, because there are so many successful indies writing um, sci-fi, military sci-fi, you know, space opera, you know, space fleet, space marine. Yeah. Like there's a lot of different sub branches that I think probably have pretty good crossover. Yeah, there are for sure. Yeah, and you guys all have amazing cover designs that are, you know kind of are on brand and, and look good together. So I feel like your subscribers are probably right on board for jumping into these other branches of your own series. Um, so you market heavily to your own list as far as your subscriber list. Yeah, you- I mean my well, this one will be interesting because this will be the first time that I haven't really. Well, I mean. This particular book is up for pre-order, but I'm not pushing it at all. I'm not mentioning it to my readers or anything like that. If they happen to stumble across it, they'll pre-order it. But usually my my normal stance is I don't care about rank, and I just care about um, getting the money when the person sees it, because I don't want to have to go market to them again later. Mm. Um, and I still think that that is, for an ongoing, a massive ongoing series like mine, that's still the best way to go, is just lay the net of pre-orders wide. And then as they look for more AO14 content, they'll just grab the pre-orders and, and pick them up from there. It's almost like having a savings account. Like I can like look at my pre-orders and say, like, I currently have like five thousand dollars worth of pre-orders out or something like that, and know that that's that's money that I can have coming in. Um, whereas sort of sort of this other thing of like not of trying to gain rank on day one, I don't know how well it works anymore, to be honest. 
because there's so many books out there. Like it used to be that there was like 10,000 books coming out a month and it was very easy to stand out amongst 10,000 books. But now there's like 70 to 120,000 books coming out a month yeah. and it can be a lot harder to stand out. And even the same amount of effort um, will gain you one tenth the result just because of the volume of books that are coming out, just sort of assuming all things being equal that there's going to be a whole, there's like, there's 10 times as many people doing better than you as well as, as everybody doing worse yeah. than you. And so your, ability it, to, your ability to stick seems to be harder because there's that many more people coming up behind you pushing just yeah. as hard. And, and there's, and there's displacing. and there's a big, yeah. And there's a big author releasing every day, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's very easy for them to, to stack up higher ranking than you and just shove you out as well. So, so I've, I had personally kind of switched my prog- my processes to um, to be more of like this long game where I'm less interested in, in spikes on release day and more interested in in a massive backlist that will that will um, earn a lot of money forever. Like my right now, if I have someone that I, that I sell book one to and they get hooked, um, I'll make two hundred and fifty dollars off of them if they read through all my books. So it's 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 quite a bit. It's a bit of a different play. I'm not necessarily looking to get a lot of people looking at um, books. I'm just looking to get the right people looking at books. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's I think that's fantastic. Um, I always I talk about this all the time. My analogy of of uh, how do you how do you tune your machine? Do you want to get a lot of juice out of one orange, or do you want to have a whole bunch of oranges? And in your case, yep. you're a prime example of someone who's like, okay, and your 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 juice machine is always pumping out juice because you've just got so many dang oranges that you're just you know <laughs> funneling them in there all the time. The hopper's always whole- full. Tree. Yeah, you've yeah, got a whole exactly. orange grove. Let's say it sounds like. Um, so I think that's that's an interesting strategy, and and it's great for people to be able to emulate. And a lot of times when I sit down with authors at Neek who are successful, who are you know the the big you know six figure authors, sometimes seven figure authors. Um, it's that's a lot of the times that's the answer. It's like how many I ask how many books do you have? Oh, I got fifty books. I got hundred books, and that seems to be a common thread. That once you get above at least at least the twenty books mark, like once you get above that line, that's where things start to really uh, shake out well in that in that department. Yeah, the continuing continuing backlist success. So yeah. It- it's the the idea that eventually you can just get you can decrease your output more and more and still make the same money or still at least make a comfortable living. Yeah. What's your advice to someone who wants to get into hard sci-fi or military fiction, this kind of genre right now, who is just starting out? Do you have any advice for for the for the newbies? Um. Sorry, I'm like dying so much. I'm not actually sleeping. I'm just I'm just I'm just blowing oxygen down here or something. <laughs> um, I think that one of the big things you really have to do is 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 you have to go one of two ways. If you're going to try and write a hard science fiction story, you've got to make sure you have um, good, solid science, but you don't belabor the science too much. People aren't interested in reading textbooks. They're just reading a book, like you said before, where you, it's clear you thought about stuff. Because yeah. they, they want to get the feeling, a hard science fiction reader wants to get the feeling that you, you, you didn't just make it all up as you went along. Mm-hmm. Um, that you had an idea and a setting and you followed through with it. The other option is just go pure magic. Um, pull a Star Wars and just like say like the Force lets me do it and you do it there. Now you can't break your own rules, so you do need to set up a really good universe. Um, breaking into it, so there's two ways to 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 market a science fiction book. One is you market on the character, and the other is that you market on the setting and the plot. And you can pretty easily tell the difference by the cover. If the cover is a person, they're probably marketing based on character. And if the cover is a spaceship, pew pewing other spaceship, the whole thing is based on on setting and plot. Um, 
But even if you do really think about your setting and whatnot, people read for characters. People do not read for setting, or very, very few people read for setting. So your characters really have to stand out. Um, knowing exactly how your guns work on your starship is a lot less important to than having them rib each other and joke about um, how this one particular weapon never loads properly You know when they're trying to get the ammo racked for the thing. That's what people want to read about. That's the stories we like. That's why whenever you read like the, the war stories from World War II, it's the ones like the Band of Brothers and whatnot, where you've got these, this, these groups of people that really care about each other that do well. Um, so think about that when you're writing your story that, that well, your setting should be good and it should be solid. You still have to make sure your characters um, are true to themselves, behave the way they should, and mm-hmm. and honestly are funny. I think being able to write humor is really important in, in books doing well because um, most people that read these genres read for escapism. Mm-hmm. They're not reading because they want they want to have their minds stretched in some new way and thinking about socioeconomical issues and the geopolitical stance of New Zealand isolating for two years or something like that. Like They're just not interested in that. No one wants to read about that. You know, we want to escape. <laughs> so that's what you, you want to make sure your books are fun. I remember the uh, I was standing in a bookstore and... I was picked up a copy of The Martian. It was the hardback version. It was, you know, twenty something dollars, but it made me laugh out loud on page two. Um, there just you go. standing there in the aisle, so I bought it. I, I spent, you know, a lot of money, but it had a gorgeous cover. Yeah. I opened it up, and on page two, I laughed out loud. And then later on, I found out that I was happy to geek out about the math and the science and all this other yeah. stuff. But I could, I, I was into it, and it was right at, you know, right my genre. But the thing that got me was the laugh, and yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's that's great advice because that's that's what people that's why people are going to keep reading. And I bet you if there was a formula there on page two, that wouldn't have had the same effect. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. The, he he saved the formulas till like the middle part. You know, he's like trying to <laughs> calculate all of his potato intake, you know, and potato production. <laughs> you know, um, but which was you know interesting too. But yeah, he had already hooked you well into this series by then, so. Um, well, that's good. Um, who does your cover art? I think you, you are pretty well branded across all of this. So are, are you, let's talk about that just for a second if you don't mind. Sure. So I have um, a guy named Andrew Dobell that does okay. my covers. He also does a lot of the covers for Michael Anderley, um, and quite a few other authors actually use him as well. And um, he has the advantage of being a photographer and a cover artist. So if you actually need someone who does photo shoots, um, he's he actually does the photo shoots that um, a lot of my covers use and then does the cover art as well which is kind of neat because then he knows what to shoot based on what goes on covers so it's a very it's you, you get a lot of good good images out of him um, and I do have some covers that are also done by a guy named Tech Tan who did a bunch of covers for Chris Fox and other folks like that he does my Rika books um, although for some of the later ones he's been really busy so he renders the character and then Andrew puts together the rest of the cover oh fun but, um, yeah yeah, he's the text really good. He's he designed the character and everything for me, and all the art and a whole bunch of other um, additional set pieces. And he just gave me all the model files for them when he was done. Yeah, which is something really uh, kind of unique for sci-fi because it's you can't necessarily just go onto Photoshop and assemble the science fiction outfit that you want um, yeah. just from stuff you find on the internet because it may not exist yet. Like you may have to create this outfit or. Um, especially if something as personal as your series is to you, uh, you're going to want this character to look right. And it's fantastic to be able to use the same model or different shots of the same model across a bunch of books. Um, yeah. how, did, how did you first think to do that? Is that something that ha- had been done already or was that something that you kind of just... Um, um, what was, how'd you get so into that? An- 
so Andrew um, used to be a wedding photographer, and then he got into writing his own books. And because he know, knew how to do photo manipulation, and he also used to be a comic book artist and did a lot of photo, photo manipulation um, in relation to that. I'm not actually sure exactly how, where he got most of his photo manipulation experience from. But so he, he also was a writer, and it started doing some of his own covers and taking some of his knowledge of doing shoots and whatnot. So for him, doing a shoot didn't cost anything other than paying a model a couple hundred dollars to stand in front of the camera for a bit. So it was very inexpensive for him to do that. So he had his own had model shots shoots being done for his own covers and michael anderley came and said like hey could you make me better covers and so they actually did um a shoot for him for for michael anderley and um andrew was looking to do more of those so he and i were in the same facebook group and i mentioned how i was annoyed that one of my stock models was appearing in other books and he's like well we could do a shoot and we did one shoot and it was kind of fun to actually buy all the clothes and to build the costumes and whatnot for the model to get into and then when we did the next shoot i actually had custom armor made um, from a from a uh, company that makes cosplay armor and stuff like that, so it was really neat as well. Then we could kind of move on and have like completely custom costumes for a lot of these characters. And kind of once you go down that road, you're like, "What do you mean I have to pick from a preset list of things? No, I yeah. wanna, I want whatever I want." Yeah. So, um, and it, it was really also especially sort of came about because um, badass, competent looking women. Um, doing stock photos stock photos of women for science fiction are very few and far between mm-hmm. um a lot of the because it's just a lot of um models just don't look strong enough to be holding a large weapon uh, <laughs> that's and and a lot of readers will call that out they're like yeah she looks badass and all but I, i'm having trouble believing she can fire that thing for an yeah. entire day and not fall over fall over yeah. yeah yeah so the neat thing so what we ended up doing is we actually ended up finding fitness models so, so women who actually their whole job is like modeling fitness clothing and workout stuff and 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 uh, weights and whatnot, and they're they're quite a bit more muscular as well. So you yeah. actually get a model that that looks like she can actually do stuff. One of my main models is actually still really thin because the character she models is actually from Mars, so she's actually quite tall and thin from growing up at in low gravity. So there's there's stuff like that in there too. So you so yeah, and when you do a shoot like that, you get like a th- couple thousand pictures sometimes, which is pretty freaking awesome. That's really cool. I. Uh... Piper and I, my daughter, may have found you another model out in the park the other day. There was a girl sitting there uh, pressing, I think, 225 over her head from a sitting position wow. in the grass. She was just rolling it up and just pressing it over her head. And, uh, yeah, it was. I saw a couple plates on there, and I was I was blown away. But, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, they're out there. and They uh, totally they, are. They can yeah. do it. Yeah. So I was, yeah. I was very impressed. But um, yeah, so this is this has been a lot of fun uh, getting to hang out and, and, and chat with you and um, geek out about sci-fi, which is something that I, that I don't get to do nearly often enough. So me either, actually. I can I can do this all day. <laughs> I really appreciate I appreciate you taking the time to, to come on the show and, and hang out. Um, Absolutely. Where can people find more information about your books, um, your website, that sort of thing? So if they want to learn more about Aeon fourteen, they can go to that. Way aeon14.com. That's A E O N, the number 14.com. And that's where I have all my books listed. Um, I'm terrible at updating news and whatnot. If you want to find the latest news about what's going on at Aeon 14, my Facebook group is the place to go. Okay. And you can just search on, on Facebook for Aeon 14 fan group and you'll, you'll find it there. And if you want to learn about some of the nonfiction stuff that I've done with my wife, you can go to thewritingwives.com and we've got our two books up there for free and then a link to, well, I guess not to pre order our third book anymore, but our third book will be coming soon. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, um, yeah, help. I'm an author, I think is a great series title. 
Um, because yeah. I, I picked up your book, Help My Facebook Ad Suck, years ago, and I know you have a second edition of that out as well. And then mm-hmm. um, I was browsing through your your launch strategy. I thought was was a good good thing to have, especially um, for all of us, especially if you off launch as often as you do. You you've been through the ringer with launches. Um, yeah. So, and then the third book is uh, is about marketing more specifically, right? Yeah, yeah, that'll be out in a couple of weeks. It has sort of a, an accidental launch. I forgot to change the dates, but um, three or four weeks I'll be out, and it's called Help My Marketing Strategy Suck. And that one's a little more of a, a holistic view at, at how to how to do all of your marketing as an author. And also one of my big mantras is, and that's something I'll be covering in that book too, is how to identify the things that aren't working and stop doing those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very important. Um, yeah. And I know uh, you mentioned that you'll be on... Um, Jamie and Sarah's podcast coming up soon later in the month for uh, yep. things I wish I'd known. I wish I'd known then podcast for writers. Uh, if you guys aren't already listening to that podcast, it's like I said, it's one of my weekly listens, and you'll get uh, more of, of Mal later on this month there and, and get some of those details as well. So, um, Mallory, thank you so much for, for being on the show. I hope to have you on again sometime in the future. This has been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Okay. All right. Talk to you again soon. Thank you, everyone, for for watching and for listening. We'll see you again uh, next week for another episode. So long.